I'm Stephen Morrissey, Managing Editor of the New England Journal of Medicine, and I'm talking with Adam Goldstein, a professor of family medicine at the University of North Carolina School of Medicine. Dr. Goldstein has co-authored a perspective article on the physician's role in assessing competency for concealed weapons permits. Dr. Goldstein, you and your colleagues write about being asked to assess a patient's competency to carry a concealed weapon. Can you describe that experience and how you responded? Yes, thank you for having me here. And two of my colleagues and I were sitting in clinic, as we frequently do, bantering uh, in between patients. And I happened to indicate I had just gotten this interesting request to fill out a competency evaluation, in essence, for a patient to have a concealed weapons permit, and said it was unusual because I'd never received one, and I wasn't really certain what to do with it. And my colleague next to me said, I got the same thing last week, and I threw it away. (laughs) And I laughed a little bit because I said, well, I felt like throwing it away, but I don't think that was the right thing to do because I'm not certain that that would help or you should ignore it. And then a week later, my third colleague had also received that request. So I said I would look into this and try to find out what one could find in the medical literature about this issue that could help guide us on what might be a, an appropriate response and help guide our colleagues. We subsequently discovered that there was nothing written on this, so there was not an easy answer, and that led us to further explore the issue to perhaps help not only ourselves and our colleagues, but physicians across the country who are facing this issue. As you say, there are no clear guidelines to help physicians assess patients' competency to carry a weapon, and you contrast that with medical clearance, for example, to drive a commercial vehicle. What about other mental competency assessments that a physician might be asked to perform? An elderly patient who wants to continue driving, an accused criminal, is he competent to stand trial? Are the criteria clearer in those areas? Some areas there's clarity, and some areas there's not. I think we know for instance, when we're asked to fill out Department of Transportation physicals because the patient comes in and they've got a 22-page form and we kind of shut our eyes, take a deep breath, and then we dive right in. We know what that form's about and we know it takes a lot of time. But then again, we can bill for it and must say that there have been times in which I haven't filled that out or I've put qualifications on there, someone who has severe high blood pressure or someone who drinks too much or someone who's got severe arthritis. Uh, We don't want them necessarily driving an 18-wheeler down down the highway, someone who's taking sleeping pills, for instance. So, But we fill that out, and that's not then our decision who makes the final determination in many cases. There are other circumstances in which we don't have quite as much guidance. So, for instance, can uh, someone who has had Parkinson's at what point in time should they not be able to drive? And unless we receive requests from the Driver's License Bureau for an evaluation, we maybe don't get involved. We know people with epilepsy who've had a seizure, we kind of routinely know when they can drive again. So I think there are kind of gradations here of when we are uh, involved take a circumstance where we're not involved at all frequently, which would be disability. There are separate physicians who are contracted to help really guide disability assessments, and you are usually excluded from that as the provider because it's presumed you might have some relationship that might influence that um, positively or negatively. We do provide records of our visits, so you can have this whole spectrum here. And the question is for concealed weapons permits, where does this lie? Is this something that we should have no involvement in? we should have complete involvement or some hybrid. 
A bill that would require universal background checks before one could purchase a gun recently failed on Capitol Hill. So given that, are physicians like yourself being asked to, in effect, perform background checks? And is there legal authority to do that? Uh, That's a great question. And the answer is that there are obligations I think we have when we're asked to get involved to assess competency for any issue. And I think this would be one. Uh, We have detailed information about our patients frequently, particularly those we've known over time. And so we could certainly provide that information if it was legal and we were requesting the patient gave permission. On the other hand, for a patient who we haven't maybe seen before, I think it's much more difficult because we don't really know without old records or a long history much about that patient. A good example would be patients who have substance use or abuse. They don't come in frequently to our office and in the first visit say, I've been abusing opioids and I would like a prescription for opioids. More frequently, that conversation is, I've never had a problem with opioid abuse, and it's only after seeing them for a number of times and or seeing some prescriptions from other providers or doing a detailed drug search through the database, one discovers that the story one got wasn't entirely true. So I think we don't want to be in a situation as physicians of needing to do background checks on our patients. On the other hand, if we know the patient well, and there are criteria that can help uh, guide us that are objective criteria, I think physicians would be willing to participate in most circumstances. That being said, you list in your article some of the ethical questions that you think physicians face when they're asked about concealed weapons competency. Where do you personally come down on the ethics of participating in that kind of approval? What's interesting is that my colleagues and I, four of whom are physicians and one of whom was a healthcare attorney working on this issue, we decided early on that our opinions about this issue really weren't the main focus of our article and that we should resist the temptation to force whatever our views were on gun control. So we actually didn't really have that conversation. We decided for us it wasn't the most relevant. I did ask one or two colleagues who weren't involved in the article what they would do with it, and both indicated like one of my initial colleagues, they weren't going to respond. I felt that I should respond, but say that I didn't feel I had the basis to really give this competency, and and nor did I know the patient, nor did I know the criteria. So I think that for myself, it would end up being a case-by-case basis, and it may be influenced, as we indicated in the article, as much by one's opinions about maybe gun control as it would be about, you know, competency. Most of my colleagues, we don't feel that there's any, this has anything to do with the right to to bear arms, but at the same token, we see data that indicates that those who uh, have weapons may, in their home, may have an increased rate of self-harm or harming. And so I think we would take that data and we might, within our own group, span the spectrum of our level of involvement. I know some of my colleagues would have no problem filling out these even now. So that's the problem and the dilemma at the same time. Looking at that broader picture, do you, as a family physician, regularly ask your patients about whether they have guns in their home? We have the questions about prevention of violence as a routine portion of our pediatric screening question. Uh, However, that is really left up to the physician to ask that. These are what's suggested according to the 
pediatric and family physician guidelines. I don't think that I probably do it uh, routinely in all circumstances, but I do perform that assessment more likely whenever I'm screening someone for depression or have a family that appears to be in turmoil and want to know if there is a gun in the home and if it's kept in a locked and secure and the uh, ammunition kept uh, separately. I think that myself and my colleagues certainly can do a better job and more consistent job. And I'd like to see the training for this be routinely incorporated into our programs. I think one of the great problems that we discovered is that very few places incorporate uh, training of physicians in violence prevention or violence prevention counseling. You also direct a tobacco prevention and evaluation program. Do you see any parallels there in terms of engaging with patients about risky behavior? Are there any lessons to be learned there? Well, a slightly tongue-in-cheek or humorous lesson would be from uh, my patients and colleagues uh, around the country who said, you wasn't enough for you to worry about the tobacco industry. You decided to take on the gun industry. And I indicated, no, we didn't decide to take on the gun industry, and that this, if they looked carefully at our article, had was really not a pro or anti-gun uh, discussion. But what it has done is opened doors and I think opened in important conversations. Just as people are not providers and myself running a nicotine dependence program, I'm not pro or really anti-cigarettes, but I'm pro-health and I'm pro-patient and prevention wherever possible. And that's the conversation I think we should be looking here. If we can prevent gun-related injuries and violence, that's a win for providers. It's a win for patients. It's a win for uh, society. The one real difference is that a cigarette, when used as intended, does kill and raise risk. There is no safe threshold. And it's the only legal product in society that has that type of distinction. With guns, as I indicated earlier, my colleagues and I would have no real qualms or real disagreements that the Constitution guarantees the right to bear arms. And we don't believe that there's intrinsically something about the guns that leads to injury when potentially used properly. However, we do see the public health data are relating to uh, gun violence, and we feel compelled to intervene. Given that, what do you think practicing physicians should be doing to reduce gun violence? We think that physicians really across the country should be doing more than they're doing. I think that we have looked at this issue in peaks and valleys as perhaps Congress and policymakers sometimes do when there's a plethora of increased violence, then people get involved. We think back 30 years ago when the advent and fear of nuclear weapons was really paramount and the physicians got involved and received the Nobel Peace Prize of Physicians for Social Responsibility and the International Physicians for Prevention of Nuclear War, in part due to landmark articles in the New England Journal of Medicine. And at that time, many people would have said, there's really no physician role in nuclear weapons. I remember in my training in Augusta, Georgia, right outside the Savannah River nuclear plant that made the vast majority of tritium for nuclear weapons, I was in a minority of physicians who felt that this was the moral and ethical obligation of physicians to be involved in this issue and that this should be part of our training. Nowadays, I think most providers would recognize there is a role here, particularly for prevention. So I'm hopeful that 
from the concealed weapons issue and competency to the training of physicians in more detailed curriculum about gun violence to the counseling of patients to policymakers coming to agreement on legislative measures that will reduce violence. These, again, can create opportunities where providers can agree, we can discuss our disagreements, we can have wins that improve patient care and safety, and ultimately uh, reduce the societal cost of violence that we all bear. Thank you, Dr. Goldstein.